I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. The word mourning also feels inappropriate for that literal time of mourning that I was in for my father because all the associations with that word were not how I was feeling. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Sheila Hetty's written essays and plays and children's books, but she's best known for her novels, which are unusual, form-stretching explorations of what a novel can be now. Her first, How Should a Person Be?, is about a protagonist named Sheila, who's a writer in her 20s from Toronto, trying to figure out her friendships and her career. Her novel, Motherhood, is also about a writer from Toronto, now in her 30s, trying to decide whether or not to become a parent. All of Hetty's books and essays seem to circle big philosophical questions played out at the level of mundane choices, like whether to go to a party, what to say to a friend. Her latest novel, Pure Color, came out this month, and it's the most philosophical work of hers so far. In it, the world is in God's flawed, pretty tragic first draft of its existence. And the protagonist, Mira, is a critic and an artist interested in whether someone can be immortal through their art. When her father dies, she experiences it as his soul merging with hers. 
Hetty came to talk about her grief about her own father's death and the long, long process of arriving to pure color. When somebody very, very close to you dies, you're not, you're halfway between where they've gone and where you were left or where you last were with them. I guess you start when you hear that the person is sick in some way. You start preparing yourself with, in my case, a a tremendous amount of dread. And I think that kind of dread is normal. Um, And then, you know, so for me, that was about a year from the time that we found out that he was sick to when he died. But then when he actually did die, it was very different from everything that had come before. And I think that's the case with lots of things in life. Like you haven't, you anticipate what something's going to be like, but then when it happens, it's actually quite different from how you anticipated it. And so I guess there's, and you know, they say with, with mourning, there's different stages and there are like, you know, there's the first week and then the first month, the first six months, the first year, and they all have their own distinct character. Um, and it's interesting, like it's it's kind of kaleidoscopic or it's like a, I'm just like picturing a rainbow and all the colors of the rainbow. Like you you pass through these different colors or these different bands of emotion and and reality and like belief and disbelief and relation, your relationship to the person who died continues after they die. It doesn't just stop. It just changes. The way that I work on my books is very periodic. Um, I'm not writing all the time. And I don't, and, and I don't always know if what I'm writing is for the book or if it's for myself or for what. And so I was writing after my father died to sort of like think about what I'd experienced and what it felt like. And just to sort of remind myself of those feelings that I knew were going to pass very quickly. And it wasn't only, it was only like a f- six months later or something when I looked at that material and sort of folded it into the book. Um, so. So it changed the book, but the book didn't have, it wasn't solid beforehand. So it's not like I had this full and whole and solid thing that this then ruined or changed. It was pretty amorphous and pretty flexible by the time that I brought that stuff into it. Yeah. What was there already? A lot of stuff about art art criticism and art critics. And there was the character of Mira, though she wasn't called Mira. And there was like these two male critic friend characters of hers that later were no longer in the book. And there was a lot of writing about this idea of middle age and the second draft and gods. So a lot of the stuff that's in the book was already in there. There was something very trivial about all the stuff that I was writing before. Um, And I don't mean that in a negative way. It was, it was meant to be uh, sort of on the surface of life. That was what I was interested in writing. I think there's something about art criticism that kind of like skates across the surface um, and the art critic themselves. And and I always knew that there had to be some kind of point of contrast or some switch um, or some other reality revealed. And I think that bringing this whole other dimension into it, um, this sort of depth or this feeling of falling, falling into some other place, um, made sense as a kind of critique of the first part and a conclusion to that way of living that that I, you know, that I'd written about that Mira had been living. That's so interesting that 
you felt like the part about the book that was sort of more about criticism was maybe more like skating over the top of things like critics do. Because in the world of the book, criticism or discernment is... I feel there's a moment where you write that it's the the thing that humans are sort of have been asked to do by God, mm-hmm. right? That it is like a, the special task, even as it's something that Miro really wants to get away from. Um, what drew you to writing about criticism and to this kind of complicated, I don't know if you would call it a love-hate relationship with it, but this kind of ambivalence to it that that exists in the book? Um, well, you never really know what draws you to write about something, but, um, I will say that like, yes, it, <laughs> it is the most important thing that humans do for God in this version of the book, but I still felt like the way that Miro was living had a kind of, well, I, trivial is maybe not a very nice word, but it had a kind of aimlessness or, uh, it was, she was like searching for something without knowing that she was searching for something, but you could kind of see that in her behavior, you know? And it's, it's not, it's not a criticism because I think that's what youth is about. Like it's about searching for something. You're not quite sure what you're searching about, but at some point that has to come to an end. Like you can't live like that forever. And so I guess the stuff that followed it is kind of like, it's a critique of that way of living, but it's also, I think not saying that it's not a critique in the sense of saying she shouldn't have lived this way, um, but it's just showing what that way lacked. I mean, this, I don't know if this is the right question, but the question I just immediately <laughs> wanted to ask you is how, how would you describe what it lacked? Um, some kind of integrity, maybe. Um, it lacked a kind of perspective. Um you know, and I think again, that's like the beauty of being young is that you don't, you don't have perspective, and that is what makes it so engaging and so absorbing and exciting. Um, so again, when I say a critique, I don't mean that it should have been otherwise. You know, there's a way of doing criticism where you say this should have been other than it what what it was. I'm not interested in that kind of crit- criticism, but you can still look at it, you know, and 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 and, and say what it's like without saying, and therefore it should have been different. So, yeah, I think that's... Right, like criticism, like observation and evaluation. Right, right. Perceiving something. I, I, um, I read that this idea of God being art critics in the sky came to you <laughs> a long time ago. Um, what, when did that idea first come to you? And how has, that, how has that notion sort of appealed to you over time? Um, it came to me when I was writing and in the very early stages of writing, how should a person be? So I was reading, I think I was reading the, the unfinished masterpiece, um, which is a Balzac sort of short story or novella. I'm not sure how you would call it. Is that, is that right? And then the masterpiece by Zola. So these like two realist works of fiction about artists, painters in particular, and it came to me around that time. I'm not sure why. Uh, and I don't, I didn't really, I haven't really done anything. I didn't do anything with it. I think I, you know, I, I just didn't know what, I don't know. Some ideas sort of stick with you and you carry them, you know, from computer to computer, so to speak, like, um, with a kind of question mark 
above your head. Um, like, what is this? Why am I carrying it from computer to computer? I mean, I didn't literally carry it from computer to computer because it was just a sentence. I was able to keep it in my head. But, you know, it's like one of those scraps that you kind of pull along with you thinking it might have some use. You know, and I studied art, art, art criticism. Like, I, I mean, I studied art history and, and when I was in university. And I'm just, I just, you know, as a writer, you become interested in criticism because you experience criticism. You experience people critiquing your work. And I, I think I've always read my reviews and I find it very interesting to see how, how people write about art and how people, what kind of feelings it brings up in them. And it's, it, you know, people take art very personally and can get very upset about it. And I've always found that really interesting. Um, and I just, I guess it was like time to think about criticism for me, you know? Yeah. I have always thought of your books as, has these um, sort of like emissions built around a core question, like, uh, I don't know, I suppose the pearl around the grain of sand or something like that. The f- I mean, of course, how should a person be, has its has its question right, right there. Um, and motherhood is also about kind of a big question. And I'm wondering if it feel, if, if it, um, if as you're writing, it feels like a direct working out of a question. Um, and, and if this book felt that way and what sort of what the question was that you were trying to, to untangle. Uh, I think it, that's the, yes, with the first, with those, with those last two books, that's, there was a question with this one. I don't think there was, um, no. That's sort of a different way of working. What was the, yeah. what was the propulsion for this book or the, the thread you were following or the, you know, grain of sand or whatever metaphor we're working with? I don't know. Now that you're asking me, I feel like I can't remember. Um, I don't know, but I must have really wanted to get to something because I, I had so much dis- many moments of discouragement, and I would put it down, and then like I'd come back three months later and be like, "No, I think there's something there." So I think it was much more mysterious to me what I was following or what I was pursuing. Um, I. I think probably partly that mystery is what compelled me and made me want to write it. You know, um, I, I don't think I can say like in a sentence or anything like that or, or, or five sentences. I yeah, don't yeah, know. Sure. Yeah. I'm cur- I'm just always curious about that. Like the, it is maybe not for everybody, but for a lot of people it's hard to write and it's hard to write particularly when you're, following kind of blindly this impulse toward a project and I'm always curious what that feels like for other people and what keeps bringing them back yeah I mean it's the question right like why why do you finish this project but you throw out the other one um and there is something that you're following that you're curious about but I don't I don't know I really just don't remember I think it must have changed you know, I worked on it over three years. So I think it was something different in the first year and something different in the second and again in the third. Um, whereas with the, pre- the previous books, it, it might have been the same thing all throughout the years. Well, that's not even true. But it's easier to say what it was in retrospect. Right. What was the common thread? I mean, I had a title for this book. That was the first thing that I had for the book, which was Critics Bare, B-A-R-E. And that title came to me in a dream. 
And I was like, oh, so I'm going to write a book called Critics Bear. And like, it is about like, <laughs> it is about that, I guess. Um, though that, I guess that's, I don't think that's what I was following all the way through. That wouldn't have kept me going all the way through. What made you change it to pure color? I didn't like the fact that when I said it out loud, you had to spell it so the person would know. <laughs> and then my friend, Mark Greif, who's a critic, he was like, I told him the title. He's like, maybe that's the secret title. So I was like, okay, he thinks this is a bad title. And I realized it wasn't a very, it wasn't a very compelling title, probably for anyone but me, you know? I mean, I like it just because there's sort of a pun in it on bear, which is one of the ma- major archetypes of the book. But I can see why, I can see why pure, it would get annoying to be spelling it over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I wanted to ask you about the the theology of this book. This book is so, it's sort of mythological slash folktale slash theology. Um, and I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about the influences on that in your thinking and, and in your writing, in your art. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've read a lot of um, religious texts and a lot of philosophy. And I mean, your influences, it's, I I don't know what the direct influence on this book was, because when I was writing this book, I wasn't reading to be influenced. And so I would have to say like everything that I had read before and all the conversations I'd had about art and God and philosophy and existentialism before, you know, I don't think that it's, it's very clear um, that there was anything in particular that, that I was drawing on besides my own, my own context as like a human being who lives in this, you know, Judeo-Christian world. Like I, you know, obviously I, I decided to make the God a he because in the, in the Christian and Jewish Bible, it's a he, you know, so those things I can make, I can draw direct lines from, but um, I'm not sure what else. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Which parts of it felt like they fell into place first and maybe most easily the kind of rules of this, of this world? Um, hmm. You know, which fell into place most easily? None of it. None of it fell into place very easily. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's like not, that's not, that was not my experience with this book, that things fell into place easily. Um, What was your experience with the book then? Uh, It just felt like I was, I just like, this like picture of a snail came into my head, like, but like a snail trying to like burrow underground, like without the, without the tools to do it. Like it just felt very, it was slow and kind of, um, 
there was not much material that I had to work with. Um, usually I have like mountains of material and then I'm just cutting, 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 cutting. And with this, like everything that I managed to write felt like a gift and a relief. And like, thank God I have this. Um, and you know, like I went to see a play by Sarah rule, um, and I was driving home from, uh, the small town outside Toronto that had this theater festival, um, where her play was. And I like drove off the highway, went to the small town and like wrote this, wrote a bunch of stuff. And I was like, wow, I'm so glad I had that experience that I could write, you know, that gave me the ideas to write this stuff. So everything kind of came suddenly and by surprise in that way. Um, and then, you know, there's always the work of figuring out what order things go in, which, which happens later for me usually. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm so moved by the image of a snail trying to dig into the ground because they don't have anything to dig with. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, exactly. No. <laughs> oh God, that's just such a, it's like so full of pathos, that image. You're just like really rooting for the snail. <laughs> I guess maybe I want to come back around to the the first thing that we were talking about, which is mourning. And I'm curious to know if mourning shows up elsewhere in your creative process, sort of more generally, if you feel like there's a connection between mourning and, and art for you, aside from this experience that you had with your father. Um... Well, I have a very bad memory and I feel like mourning maybe requires memory, you know, like you, you think back on times and they're lost to you and you have a feeling of, uh, you know, of, of mourning them. They're dead. They're gone. They'll never, you know, I'm not, I don't look back very much. I'm not very nostalgic. So I don't, I don't think that mourning is a very prevalent emotion for me in my life or in my work. And I don't even think in this case with my father, you know, that word I just think is just, that's the only word we have. Is that your dog yawning? Yeah, sorry. That's she's so now, cute. I love it. <laughs> now she's, just like, she's at the door <laughs> and wants to be let in because I've closed the door on her. <laughs> oh, poor thing. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I was just going to say, um, I don't think that, yeah, the word mourning also feels inappropriate for that literal time of mourning that I was in for my father because all the associations with that word were not how I was feeling. Um, you know, I don't really, I don't experience a lot of depression. I can get very anxious. I can get very, lots of different things, but that feeling of that depressive feeling that, you know, that I associate with mourning and grief, that just, that's not, that's not something that, comes easily to me. Can I ask what it did what it did feel like? What the words what what words might have been better to describe? Well, that's the whole book. I mean, that's like I was trying to put the feelings in. You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, I I really liked how all of the sorrow in the book was more for the world um or more expressed around this sort of the tragedy of living in the first draft even though there's sort of beauty in that. Also, and and 
the emotions that Mira had around her father's death were so much more complicated, so much more full of joy, so much more full of confusion or rest or I don't know. Um, mm. I've never I've never read writing about grief quite like that. Yeah, I think that's why I, that's why I wanted to write it because I hadn't experienced the grief that I had in my body and soul. Like I hadn't I hadn't um, read anything that came close to what my experience of it was, and I thought, well, those are the kind of things you sort of want to put in the world when your experiences when your experience of something contrasts with all the representations you've seen of it. Because you think, well, other people must also have these contrasting experiences. And, you know, if you don't see them written down, you you don't take them seriously or you don't believe them or you don't know how to understand them. Um, I'm not sure why all the or so many of the books that I've read about grief and mourning just have that particular tone or that particular note. Did you review a lot of them when you were working on this? No. So maybe I'm wrong, but I just think of the ones that I've read over the course of my life. You know, I did try to read some, you know, because somebody dies and you think, well, maybe I'll read some books and they'll help me through it. And, and they just all felt like not what I wanted to read, like not really what I, not connected to what I was going through. Were there things you did want to read? Or that you prefer in that time? Yeah, like Dostoevsky. Like I was immediately like, I want to, I need to read Crime and Punishment. Like, I don't even know why. Uh, I think just, it's just a book too. It's just such a great book, you know? And I think I just wanted to read great literature. Like I just wanted that connection that you have to a great soul or a great artist or um, like that book to me, such a monument, you know? And I hadn't read it since I was a teenager, so I wanted to read it again, finally. And it was hmm. completely it was a completely different book from what I remembered. Because I was completely different, you know? Right. From when sure. I was seventeen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you have that experience looking back over books that you've written as well? I don't really look back over them. Uh I I mean I might like open a page and just read a page now and then if I'm curious to be like, oh, what was that? What was that book? You know, not that I have ever forgotten my books, but, you know, sometimes you just want to encounter them sentence to sentence. But no, I don't think, I don't think I couldn't see them differently from, I just see where I was when I was writing it and who I was when I was writing it. I, I, I like the time that I was writing, it comes back to me. It's more about the bringing back that time than bringing back the book. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your editing process. It seems like you... One of the things that I really admire about your books is that they seem to have been put together in really interesting ways and always kind of surprising to me, but it, what feels very, both very um, like loose in a good way, but also extremely careful. <laughs> and I'm curious to know how you, how you edit, like what do you start with and then how do you um, make decisions about inclusion or order what does that process look like um well I always am referring back to the first time I wrote something so if I have like a passage I'll always keep the original 
And even as much as I edit it, I'll always, you know, every six months or something or three months or whenever it starts to look sort of maybe too different from the original, I'll look back at the original and I'll see if I need to sort of rewind, you know, and bring mm-hmm. back any of that original spirit. That it, because, you know, the first time you write something, it has a kind of energy and a kind of, I don't know, it just has something that no edit can ever add and it's only can take that that quality away so i want that quality um but it's hard to keep it in because i do edit so much and i do rearrange so much and i'm always trying to find the right order and figure out what goes first what goes second what goes third what makes sense you know so like i like you say like it's very deliberate and at the same time i just i want to keep that spontaneity and that sort of messiness and that sort of yeah that first that first feeling. How do you get back to that? Do, I mean, do you ever run into the problem of, of things starting to feel over overworked? And if so, how do you kind of reel, reel back? Well, I literally go back to the first time, that document that has the first time I wrote that passage. Mm-hmm. And I'll just either, and I'll sometimes just cut and paste and put the original one in, the, in place of the rewritten one, or I'll take elements from the original one And, you know, and maybe there's three sentences in the original that I'll restore to their, you know, I'll I'll put into the the rewrite. Like, it's just very technical. Do you know where you want to be going? Do you have a clear sense for what the, even just the feeling of the end product should look like? Yeah, I have sort of something... Usually, like it's a, a, it's like a, a way that I want the mind to work, um, or to feel when it's experiencing the book. Um, so, I think that's that's a kind of emotion, or it's like a texture, and that's what I pursue. And then there's also like a shape that I can sort of feel inside my body, which is like the shape of the the narrative or the book or the structure. So it's like the, it's like the t- it's texture and shape, I guess. I love that. I, um, I feel, I feel like I hear that more often than you would expect that the way a writer or an artist is thinking about thinking about the book has to do with a shape that they can feel. <laughs> somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know why that is. Like why it's the why a piece of writing can feel so spatial to the person yeah. making it. Uh I know. I I wonder that too. Why why is that so clear and so definite? And it's not even a shape you could draw or describe. So it's like you use the word shape for it, but if you were to try to draw it, that would just be like absurd. Like you can't draw the shape. Because it's not a shape in that way. Right. No, it's not. It's like a memory. It's like a shape the way a memory is a shape. Right. Right. Somehow. It's like a... But not quite. It's like a memory (laughs) without the content. It's like like a shape the way the memory is a shape, but without the content that that memory naturally has. Right. It's like dimensional without being visual. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So strange. We need to... I want to... I want to... (laughs) personally 
uh, like edit a collection of a bunch of different writers trying to trying to get this thing down because it's it's like very common I think and yet so hard to talk about yeah and you feel it in your chest like at least I do so like maybe somebody else doesn't feel it in their chest like maybe they feel it at the back of their neck like where does everyone feel this shape um yeah. Or do some people just see it like, or is it hovering in front of some people rather than being embedded inside their body? So yeah, there's so many interesting questions. Uh, yeah. I think you should do a whole thing about it. Yeah. I was talking to Karen Russell once a long time ago and for her, she was talking about like, it was in front of her and there was like the, there was like a micro macro thing where it's like, if you touch one thing on the outer edges, something, something major changes on the end. There was something very, it was like a beautiful machine or something. <laughs> wow. Uh, and I've never forgotten that because it just looked very, it looked like it was maybe very grand. <laughs> it would be so good, like either an audio collection or a written collection of everyone trying to like get at what this shape is. Like, and Virginia Woolf writes about it too. Um, she talks about it from the perspective of reading. And it's true. Like when you read a book, you finish it and you're left with this shape, the shape of the book inside you. So I think it's something that readers experience too. Yeah. It feels, I mean, I guess there, there's been a lot of writing from, you know, over, over the centuries of people conceiving of books architecturally. Right. Um, so there's also the idea of walking, walking through a book or living inside the book. But does it seem possible for the reader to actually experience the shape that the writer experienced in like, is that actually what gets conveyed or is that impossible for that to get conveyed? And it'll always be a different shape and sometimes a radically different shape. I don't know. I mean, I feel like the, the way, I don't know, should we, I feel like the only way you could check that is by getting the reader to describe the shape and the writer to describe the shape. Right, but and I don't think you can the describe same. the shape. Right. Yeah, I mean that would be ideal, but I don't think you can describe the shape. Like I don't know how to describe the shape of crime and punishment. Like I don't know how to describe the shape of. I'm just looking at my bookshelf. Well, like just take a random book. Uh, I don't know, like the Ishiguro book about the remains of the day. Right. Do you know how What's to describe the, sh- the shape of pure color? Well, you're asking me at a time when the book is farthest away from me. Because talking about it puts it so far away from you. So I might have been able to do that uh, two weeks before the book came out, you know, or six months ago. But this is like the worst time to ask me that question. (laughs) Maybe I'll ask you again in a year and a half and see see if it's come back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it'll come back by then. Hopefully. Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.